We are live. Good to go. <laughs> Glad to have you on, Ari. Um, but as we go ahead and start, we can go ahead if you just want to do a quick introduction to who you are. Of course. My name is Ari. I am a um, transplant to Columbia. So I moved here in 2012 to go to USC. Um, I went to the Honors College so that I could get a BABS degree in urban planning, which Ooh. doesn't exist because the BABS program at the Honors College let you create your own major so long as you could prove that no other combination of majors and minors at USC could make the program that you wanted. So so you literally created your own major. I created my own major. That's the most Ari thing I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. And that's the only reason I came here. The only reason I came here was so that I could do that. Um, so wait, did you want to go into urban planning? I did originally. So I came to USC undecided, but I knew I wanted to do the BARSC program. BARSC is how they abbreviate it. And I took my freshman year to kind of figure out what I wanted to focus on. Sophomore year landed on urban planning. And I thought all through college that I would be an urban planner when I graduated. So I got internships at all of these different like sustainability organizations because I wanted to focus on urban planning and sustainability and like the growth of a sustainable economy around cities. And I thought that that would be really interesting. So I got internships at Sustainable Carolina, which is on USC's campus. I got a Hollings Fellowship, which was an internship and grant through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Huh. So um, I didn't know any of this. I'm learning all of this right now. Fun facts. So that was um, really cool, though. It was fun. It was really cool, and I enjoyed it so much because, like, it's such a rich topic, and I think urban planning has come into focus a lot more, especially in the last ten years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, you hear way more about geography, urban planning, urban planners, like the discipline of planning a city and making sure that all of the people as well as buildings and nature are in harmony with each other. Some cities do that better than others, obviously. Right. right. But I, it was very rich and I had like a great experience at the honors college. Um, and I worked with the mayor of Columbia. I had an internship with him. Um, if you looked at me in college, I was like working so much. I, took, I did so many, I did internships and full-time jobs and yeah, classes. I was, and, I was very similar. <gasps> I was all over the place. I graduated and then just crashed. Yeah, I was the exact same. Like, so I ended up graduating in three years and working multiple jobs all the way through it. And by the time that I got done with school, I was exhausted. Like so exhausted. It was like, I'm not, I can't, how am I going to start working? Like burnout now? doesn't even begin to describe. Right. <laughs> like I started working and I was like, man, what a nice reprieve. I Oh my like, God. When I started my full-time job out of college, I would get home and it would be five o'clock and I'd be like, there's no homework. I don't have to, to do. do anything. Right. Like, I don't have to go anywhere. It's I don't have to feeling. go. It was incredible. I, was with my now fiance and he is a very like busy person he loves to like be engaged in a lot of different activities and when I would come home this first year out of college and just sit he was like why don't you get a hobby why aren't you doing anything and I was like Sean you don't understand this is my <laughs> right. time like right. I will do nothing I finally get to breathe for the first time in a while I'm gonna enjoy it exactly that's pretty funny it was so fun and so out of college um while I was a senior I had, or I think I was a junior at this time, but so when I was a junior, I took a class taught by Mayor Steve Benjamin of Columbia and Ben Rex, the CEO of Cyberwoven. And from that class, I managed to get the internship with the mayor. And then the following semester, Ben Rex happened to remember that I'd been in his class. He was looking for interns to work at Cyberwoven and he 
texted me. He had my number somehow. And he was like, do you want to work at Cyberwoven? And I said, okay. And I started work there ostensibly to be Ben Rex's personal assistant. And that kind of morphed into managing the National Historic of um, National Register of Historic Places nomination process for the office building that they were trying to buy and move into mm-hmm. for Cyberwoven's new headquarters. So it was kind of tangentially related to urban planning. And he like tapped me because, as he put it to me, he didn't think that I actually wanted to be an urban planner. And he wanted me to like test out the theory that right, I would do right. well in like an urban planning space. <laughs> Flash forward, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's not because it was a bad experience. Like it was very fun. I stayed at Cyberwoven way past the time that we had filed all the paperwork for the National Register of Historic Places process. But it's such a slow process and right. there's so much minutia. And if you look at urban planners, they make 10-year plans, 15-year plans, and they're not always around once right. those plans get implemented. Right. And There's a lot of government red tape. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of like so many agencies working together from so many different levels of administration. So mm-hmm. like with the National Register, you submit paperwork to the city, the state, and the county. And it's all for different tax credit purposes. Right. And every agency that touches that application has a different say in what you should be doing with this property. And that's not true for all urban planning. Like, that's a very specific process. But I'm a very immediate results kind of person. I like to feel like every day I've done good work and, like, what I've done speaks for itself. And then it's all very good. And to wait 10 years to see the outcome of something that you care a lot about. It'd be pretty brutal. I I would... I would struggle with it's that. It's hard. Oh. Yeah. So he was right. <laughs> I would not have done well in an urban planning environment. Maybe like there are ways that you can be involved in urban planning, but work for an architecture firm mm-hmm. or a consultancy and things like that. But it's still a very slow pace. There's still not a lot of ownership around what you end up producing and who actually implements it. So like you can have a plan presented to somebody, but like contractors and builders and city governments and all these other people are going to be the ones implementing it so there's a lot of disconnect which i don't like a lot yeah yeah so that makes sense so you didn't go into urban planning i did not what did you go into then so while i was at cyberwoven they realized that because of the long slow lagging process of applying for this tax credit program there's a lot of downtime in my days because we would go through a burst of putting all these documents together, but then they would be sitting with these agencies for weeks or months. And so in the meantime, Ben Rex decided that it would be good for me to get involved in some of the work that Cyberwoven did at large. So Cyberwoven is a web design firm and they have developers, designers, content writers, um, and they had not really investigated digital marketing or search engine optimization when I first started. Mm -hmm. And Ben Rex decided that that would be a fun pet project for me to kind of get involved with digital marketing and learn more about search engine optimization. And I'm a student at heart. Like I'm very good at digging into information. So as soon as he said, you should learn more about these things, I was like, let's go. Yeah. yeah. I went for it. So it's a whole new thing, whole new world opened up. To exactly. You. And so I became the first digital marketing specialist that they had on staff. And that meant that, um, I helped their clients run digital marketing campaigns. I came up with like campaign ideas. Your wife Carson and I worked together at Cyberwoven to come up with some really fun uh, campaigns to drive business and leads and stuff for local businesses and things like that. So it was really fun and it was really great. And after 
four almost four years at Cyberwoven. I left to go start um, digital marketing at a brand based in Lexington, a fishing brand. And gotcha. I've been working there now for a year. And I'm digital marketing manager, so I help run their Amazon campaigns, Google campaigns, right. social all media, the works. all of the. Do works. you do a lot of fishing? That's my question. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> <laughs> you just name a time. Oh, name man. a time, and I, we can go. I <laughs> I would like to get better at fishing. Like fishing's never really like spoken to me on a personal level. Like my family likes fishing, and my dad's a big fan of fishing, and so have my grandparents. But um, it's just never something that I've exposed to very often yeah. and like oh man i love it my coworkers uh, have taken me fishing a little bit but yeah. every time we want to use the boat the ceo needs to take it and it's like <laughs> those ceos not fair. <laughs> right <laughs> but i mean you got a company boat that you can take out that's pretty awesome well they all just pitch in their boats everybody yeah, at enough. this company drives trucks so that they can haul their boats to whatever like well, they want that's to what go i'm trying to convince on. carson to let me do and it is not going well so far mm, i'm so sorry my yeah. condolences yeah yeah so I definitely do. I think one of the one of the things I wanted to get into today with you is talking a little bit more about like the digital space because I think that right now, obviously, the digital space has been growing a ton over the past ten to fifteen, of course, twenty years, and but especially since the pandemic started, everything is online, like more so than it has ever been. People are shopping online, they're buying their food online, there, and all of that, of course, is all funneled and fueled by ads and marketing campaigns and people like you and like my wife that are sitting behind a desk somewhere and designing the perfect campaign to get people to purchase their products and stuff. Like how have, have you seen a lot of change in that over this past year? And like, where do you think that that is going? 100%. There's been a huge shift in what they call e-commerce penetration. So what's been happening recently is due to the pandemic, there's been a 40% increase in e-commerce retail sales. And it's, it's it's unlike anything that's ever happened in the industry before. The rate at which companies are investing in online stores and driving people to those online stores is unprecedented in the last two decades. And the rate at which companies are taking up these new means of delivering goods and services is insane. So, yeah. I mean, it's through the roof. And I mean, you have to think like the amazing thing to me about the digital, especially digital marketing side of things is you can so much better track the customer from, I mean, all the way down funnel. So like where, like sending them an, a, an ad, you know, based upon their age or based upon their gender or whatever it is that you want to do, as opposed to more classic or traditional forms of marketing where you have to put up a billboard mm -hmm. and you have no idea if that billboard is actually driving people to your store. But with, with digital, like you can track the clicks, you know, you can track how long they're on the page. You can track literally everything. Yep. And you can see which, platforms are delivering the most value to you based on the number of sales that they generate. And what's right. really interesting is some of these tools give you insight into what placement on their platform generated the most for you. So like if you're an advertiser and you are on social media, mm -hmm. if you advertise through Facebook, that also gives you access to Instagram's platform because they're owned, they're together right. as the company. And you can see in the ad reports, the stories did the best or the in feed did the best versus like article placements, things like that, where you can see exactly where those clicks and conversions are coming from. It's, I think it's going to open up a lot of possibilities for these retailers who are going online for the first time or offering things for the first time, especially because a lot of the 
website offerings out of the box are also very granular. Like if you look at a Salesforce or a right. Shopify, they also give you really like deep dive analytics on who came to your store, what time of day, what pages did they look at? Like, did they abandon cart? At right. what rate did they leave your store without having purchased something is really interesting. Right. And it's all structured in a way to be able to make sure that that customer clicks buy. Right. And like not just clicks buy, but like actually pays, like gets all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy all of the analytics. And it, it makes me think about um, that Netflix documentary. Um, what's it called? With. Yeah, The Social Dilemma. Have you oh, seen that? I haven't seen that yet. You need to watch it. So the whole premise of the documentary is basically they get together all of these people that worked in big tech mm. social media companies and they talk about how they structured the platforms in a way so that they can generate the most ad revenue and basically keep people on, keep people clicking, you know, basically just continuously mm -hmm. on their platforms. The dopamine hits over and over and over, over and over and over again. And over yeah. again. Yep. And all these like digital marketers are so smart. Like they know what they're doing and they're able to structure the site in a way, like everything from the way that the site is laid out to where the pictures are on the page to where the button is and what the button says. It's crazy. Yeah. It is craziness. I think we're going to see a big increase. It's already been happening, but I think because of the rate, the number of retailers and business owners who are going online, I think we're going to see a big increase in the number of agencies catering to those people to mm. deliver those kinds of services and those kinds right. of insights right. because not everybody is a marketer and not right. everybody can put together a strong campaign or a strong website. And I think as more people start to realize like, oh, actually this out of the box Shopify site or Salesforce site isn't exactly what is driving the best return for me. So they might start investing in consultancies or right. agencies that can deliver those kinds of results. Do you see companies ever abandoning brick and mortar completely? Do you I, think that could happen? I think so. And I think it's already been happening. And I think with the pandemic, foot traffic is not guaranteed. And I think people mm. are realizing that as we've seen, like malls have obviously been on the decline for decades. Years, yeah. Right. And a lot of people have I tried to. I couldn't even to... think of the last time I went to a mall. <laughs> like, I, I, exactly. It I, was before never... even the shutdown. Right, like right. it had been months before I'd gone to the Harbor Center, Columbiana or whatever. But I think there's always been a space for like the small boutique shops, like the neighborhood stores and things like that. And they might not necessarily be the people who are moving their sales online, but for the people who have moved a lot of their sales online, they might realize, oh, the overhead's so much lower. Right. I don't have to pay rent. I don't have to pay employees to man the till. I don't have to do all of these things. I don't have to maintain inventory in this very expensive place. Right. So I think there, the incentives are there for business owners to recalculate how they want to structure their business. And yeah. if online sales is doing well in this time period, then who knows what's going to happen. Right. After it, the may continue, over. it might just continue to go up. Yeah. And I mean, I think that we're going to see, it's going to be really interesting to see how the trends of people, like how they do their shopping, where they go to do their shopping, whether it's online or whether it's in the store, like there's a whole bunch of people predicting that the economy is just going to explode here later this year because everybody's going to be like, Oh, I'm so tired of sitting around in my house. I want to go shop. I want to go to restaurants. But I also have a hard time believing that people are going to abandon the convenience of being able to just go online and order whatever it is that they want. Especially the subscription services that right. deliver you, like like you were saying, groceries or like I got into Chewy recently because I've never had my cat food delivered before. Like right. that's something that I never would have thought of. I could have just gone to the pet store, but now 
Like, that's convenient. It right. comes every eight weeks. I don't, I, don't have, I don't have to think about I mean, it. Cats <laughs> eating the same food. Exactly. Just order it online. Have them deliver it. Yeah. That's so I, true. Yeah. I do think that Instacart is one where I would I would like to never have to use Instacart again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I don't know. I've, so I will openly admit I do none of my grocery shopping because Carson does not trust me with it at all. Have I told you that Sean and I grocery shop separately? I you have not that's well it would make sense though because he's he power lifts right? yeah so he has to have a pretty specific diet he has a very specific diet he's not vegetarian I'm vegetarian or pescatarian and so I prepare my own meals he prepares his own meals and that's when we grocery hilarious. shop we pull from like entirely separate sections of the store like so we'll shop together but like he's off in this aisle getting his stuff right. and I'm off in my aisle getting my stuff and then when we check out we Venmo request each other for whatever the balance is. For That's their hilarious. Half. So yeah, for those of y'all that don't know Sean, he is he's beefed. He is a, a a strong man to say the least. A big dude. He makes me look smaller than I am, and I'm already I'm a five one. Like I'm not a big person. Right. <laughs> he's a he's a big guy. I, he's the kind of dude that you would want to be on your on your side in a bar fight. Yep. For sure. Yeah. But um, so I guess get it, I guess going back to a little bit about that, like, I guess, digital side of things. How do you think that things have changed in the structure of websites and whatnot to keep people there and to keep people like, do you think that there's a lot to the whole clickbait culture that especially you see the right side of the aisle jumping up and down about? with like the way the media structures things with like crazy headlines or, you know, all the clickbait. I think what's interesting about like the right versus left argument with that is when you look at right leaning publications, they've historically been online news sites. They haven't had to make a transition from print to online. Whereas you look at a lot of left-wing publications if you're thinking of like the new york times or the washington post or the atlantic like they've always had some sort of like physical delivery of their news and they've had to transition to an online source of news in order to capture more subscribers and more eyeballs and things like that right and so i think it's interesting where you could make the argument that the left media has adopted clickbait but i think the right media has always been inundated in Mm. that culture that has demanded that type of delivery vehicle and so when you think about clickbait in general clickbait is designed to get as many shares as possible to get as many interactions as possible to drive eyeballs to the site and the reason that that's important is because if you look at just journalism in general web like online has become so much more important than print if you look at local news sites and papers around the country they've had to shift their model away from having a print edition to only online or only digital subscribers and that requires some sort of constant feeding the funnel of who is going to look at this article how am i going to get ad revenue from the ads that i have placed on this news article right and that's where you look at sites like Forbes you can't look at Forbes without disabling your ad blocker right you can't you can't look at certain sites without saying like I will pay a digital subscription or I will disable like the thing that's blocking the way that you make money and so I think clickbait has arisen out of necessity because of the way that the financial model for print journalism has changed and I think a lot of right-wing news sites haven't really had to deal with that if you think about just how they came about in the news space to begin with. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, there's there were, of course, 
you know, publications that were a bit more right leaning. But especially if you look at like the history of journalism, you would have your, you know, your local newspaper, right? And your local newspaper, you might have two in your town and one might have a little more of a left-leaning bias. One might have a little bit more of a right-leaning bias. And that was normal. Everybody just kind of accepted it for what it was. And of course, they bought the newspaper that appealed to them the most, right? Now, I feel like it's almost to the nth degree where it's like you are in, in constantly being inundated now, especially with social media, because that's how a lot of people are getting a lot of their news with stuff specifically tailored towards you that also has this incredibly brash clickbait title, Mm -hmm. right? And so there, of course, were brash headlines in the New York Times in the, you know, late 1800s or I mean, late 1900s, right? Early 1900s, whatever. But now I feel like it's almost to the point where it's like, in order for them to be able to get the money that they would have been making from selling those papers, they've got to get it through clicks. Mm-hmm. They've got to get it through ads. They have to pay their staff somehow. Right. Yeah. They got to pay their staff. They got to pay those, all those people writing those articles. So it's like, all right, whether you're right leaning or left leaning, it's like, boom, we're going to throw something on the page that's going to catch somebody's yeah. eye. What's so interesting, like, I think of two things when I think of clickbait. One, I usually don't associate clickbait with news. Interestingly, I associate clickbait with like BuzzFeed or Huffington Post uh, or like yeah. the kind of like quizzy kind of. So you wouldn't consider Huffington Post news? Well, they pivoted to news recently, but that really wasn't their bread and butter in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And like when I was interacting with their articles on Facebook like five years ago, it wasn't necessarily like Ariana Huffington is something very important to say. Right. It was like, right. <laughs> here's, right. here's a long thing about. I don't know what cereal you think you right, are. Right. So, like, <laughs> well, yeah, take this quiz to figure out what kind of cereal you exactly. are. Exactly. So when I think of clickbait, that's usually what comes to mind first. With news, what I find interesting about the headline writing in general is usually the writer who writes the article doesn't have a say on what the headline is. Hmm. And the um, a different part of the paper, like an editorial writer rather than um, like editorial staff rather than the article writer themselves chooses what that headline is going to be. And it changes platform to platform. Right. And so you might oh, have does. something that's optimized for Twitter. You might have something that's optimized for Facebook. It might be a col- totally different headline when you're on the actual website version of that news site. Oh, absolutely. And it's it so changes. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it changes based upon what your political preferences are when you were on whatever platform it is that you're trying to get that news from. Exactly. Which is crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, is that manipulation, right? Like, are, is that, is that media companies like manipulating people or is that just them doing their best to get people to read the article? Right. Yeah. And it, it's a question of like how, I think the way that the left and the right view the media depends on how malicious you think the media is trying to be mm-hmm. with your opinion. And something that I've noticed along the same lines of clickbait is something that's happening in newsrooms across the country is they're adding more kind of loose cannon voices to their editorial staffs. Very much so. So like the op-ed sections of news sites, you might see something batshit insane coming right. out of the New York Times and you're like, I don't understand what happened here. And it's because they're trying to incite some feelings that maybe other writers or other articles in that paper or on that publication aren't going to do. Right. They're trying to generate that kind of buzz that clickbait kind of does. And so you look at so many different like op-ed rooms across the nation and there's just a whole, they run the whole gamut of political ideologies, like approaches and it's so interesting. And to me, that means that these newsrooms are trying to just throw anything at the wall and see what sticks. Right. And they're trying to right. kind of churn 
through different ideologies and different writers to see and appeal to, to your point, many different people in the guise of seeming balanced and objective and fair. And so like, for example, like the Tom Cotton op-ed that ran in the New York Times that caused a lot of ripples where he asked for the National Guard and like troops to be deployed to cities with Black Lives Matter protests um, that shocked a lot of people coming out of the New York Times because this is a Republican representative asking for the U.S.'s own troops to be deployed against its own citizens. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were really upset by that. But to me, that was the hallmark. And the editorial director who approved that choice resigned. Um, right. So because there was outrage, there I was mean, outrage. people were furious. But to me, that like that's a great example of. I felt like, in some ways, I feel like that's what an op-ed portion of a newspaper should be. Right? Like you should be able to have a wide gambit of different views, like all over the place. I agree. But what's sad is people see that single headline, and they don't realize that that's not representative of that publication right. at whole, as a whole. And so you get a lot of people saying like, "I can't believe that this publication would do this," or like if this is what the rest of the New York Times is like, I don't want it or whatever. Right, I'm you know? unsubscribed, cancel, exactly. cancel And it. so <laughs> I think there's some danger in trying to um, be as broad as possible if it doesn't represent the publication that is putting it out there. Yeah, and that's fair. There's some, there's some validity to saying, I want to represent as many voices as possible for the people's paper, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Not that that's their slogan, but yeah. Um, it's difficult. It's a it's a fine wire to tread, and I don't envy anybody who has to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> especially because I think that people now, because of especially anonymity on the internet, are more emboldened now than ever to say exactly what their opinion is. Mm-hmm. And not even what their opinion is, but what their opinion is at its extreme. Right, like let it all out. Are you an online commenter? Like, do you get in the comments? section? I am not at all. Okay, I'm not either, but that tendency is so it like bewilders it's me. so weird it blows I, my mind i can't i cannot imagine spending mental energy which is so precious as right. you know, having spent so much of it in college right. like i cannot imagine spending my mental energy negatively interacting with something on the internet when i could just as easily scroll away right like, just watch me scroll away well like, and so I, i've thought a lot about this and i really do think a lot of it has to do with people want to see justice and people yearn for and desire to see things play out the way that they feel like they should. And as a result, they feel emboldened by their anonymity online and they feel like they're making a difference, right? If you're able to cancel somebody that you think is bad, if you're able to say something. But I mean, there again, there's plenty of people that just say absolutely bonkers things. See, I was going to say, that's a very uh, generous view of (laughs) online trolls. (laughs) Like my my view of online trolls is that they just want to feel right. It yeah. doesn't matter what it's for. Doesn't matter what it, it is. It doesn't matter yeah. if it's justice or if it's like dignity or integrity. Right. They just want to be right. Or just really pissing somebody off. Exactly. Because there's plenty of people that want to do that too. I, I saw somebody tweet today, um, dunk drunk. And I thought that that was a very apt description for when people just like needlessly pile on to things. They want it. They're dunk drunk. Yeah. They just want the dunk. Right. They want to dunk on somebody. Exactly. I've never heard that, but that's really funny. It's so good. <laughs> I think it was a very, I thought it was a very apt description, but yeah. I don't understand that tendency. Yeah. I don't get it, but I mean, it's happening more and more. And honestly, I don't, I don't see it going away. No, I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. I heard a really interesting interview with Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, Which he's got some really cool thoughts around like what he thinks social media should be. Like it should be a utility and everything. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, you're he's, fine. He's got a lot of cool stuff. He's but. got a lot going on up there. But something that he was 
in this interview and the interviewer was trying to get Jack Dorsey to admit that Twitter had created this environment of negativity and like Twitter was for some reason maliciously part of this environment where people are dunk drunk or people are like letting things go viral that are mean or insidious or not nice and Jack Dorsey was like this type of behavior has existed on the internet since its founding like Twitter is not a unique cesspool these kinds of behaviors exist across all parts of the internet if you look on the most benign platform you're going to find somebody being horrible or saying terrible things or purposefully trying to make people angry exactly like trolls are everywhere and like anybody right. who's ever been on the internet could say like yeah twitter's not unique in this <laughs> like, yeah you go yeah. on reddit like there are some parts of the internet that have been banned and like servers will refuse to host them because of how like famously heinous they are right so, right uh, so what do you think about that do you think that it should that it's okay for people to be banned from certain platforms and for or do you view social media as more of like like a service provider like they shouldn't be involved in the banning of or silencing of voices no matter how heinous that voice is i don't think of them as service providers i don't view individual social media platforms as anything other than private companies who have the decision to make any they have the power to make any decision as they please about whoever uses their platform like the i think there are a lot of people who have woken up to being blocked or being banned on certain social media platforms or having their posts removed, but that's been happening for a really long time. Yeah, like, yeah. There's been like graphic content removed from Facebook since its founding, since right. it began. Like if you look through rec- like records of the uh, moderators that have existed on Facebook, like it's it rough. is, it's rough. Like people go through trauma trying yeah. to like sort through all of these terrible things, child porn, like animal abuse and cruelty. Yeah. Like there are so many things that should not be shared and should not be right. uh, like publicly just dis- like dispensed. And I was listening to something really interesting the other day about there's three things that social media platforms can choose to do about content that they don't want to spread. They can choose to do nothing. They can choose to delete the content entirely and ban the people who share it, mm-hmm. or they can take a moderate approach and the toolbox for the moderate approach is vast. Like there are many tools that you could use that's kind of like in the middle. And one of them is, for example, algorithmically devaluing that content. Right. So like right. Facebook, that's not an editor. It's not an editor choosing what is shown to you. It's an algorithm that says this would be more interesting to you based on your interests and your age or like what else you've interacted with mm-hmm. on Facebook in the past. So here's this nice piece of content that we think that you would like. And if Facebook wanted to moderate something, they could choose to, hmm, right. maybe you won't Tamp see that. It down. So right. it still exists. You can still access it, but it won't get spread as quickly. It right. won't get distributed as widely. And then there's some other things that they could do. Like um, Twitter has chosen to put like little information icons underneath mm-hmm. like posts or articles that they think are misleading or that might be right. contain sensitive information like vaccines and election information and things like that. So there are a lot of middle ground ways that social media platforms can choose to limit the spread of certain information or add caveats to it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that there are public utilities and I don't think that anybody has a right to post whatever they want on Facebook or Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like you already have a right to say whatever you want. The tool that you use to do that is not a right. 
Right. So. Right. That's yeah. And I, I agree with you on that. And at the end of the day, I agree. They're companies. They can do whatever they want. Right. If they want to stop people from posting. That's fine. I think where it gets iffy for me, though, is when it affects someone's business based hmm. upon. So like for a great example of like you were talking about, like the moderate approach that like Facebook would take. So Ben Shapiro, who is, for those that don't know, extremely, a very, very conservative, far right wing political pundit, right? Um, And he has been claiming and jumping up and down for a long time that Facebook purposefully nerfs a lot of the content that he puts out, right? What's so funny about that is he's one of the most widely shared users on Facebook in Facebook history. Oh, absolutely he is. (laughs) Um, But a lot of what he says is, he was basically saying that leading up to the election uh, from a lot of the stuff that I was listening to him talk about was like up until somewhere around July or August, all of their stuff was getting shared like crazy, like absolutely blowing up. And then right around August to September, everything kind of plateaued and then kind of started to go down. Um, And then, you know, obviously that was right before the election. And so he was saying, it seems like, Obviously, he's not behind the algorithm, right? But it seems like Facebook is nerfing a lot of the stuff that he that he was putting out. And so one of the things that I guess makes me a little bit nervous about social media companies deciding whose voice is the loudest is that there are billions of people on these platforms, right? If you just, if a social media company decides and they have proven that if they want to push people's ideas and minds in a certain direction, they can do it. And so what happens if and when these companies get in the pockets of one specific political party and things start to move in a direction that they want it to go? I mean, that just makes me a little bit nervous, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a left left, like it looks like it's going a little bit more left wing now somewhat, but I just think that's because the Democrats have in some ways kind of like maybe catered to a little bit more tech companies, whereas the right wing has been like, we need to remove section 230. You know, we're, we hate all the social media companies because they hate all media because mm-hmm. that's what Trump wants and whatever Trump yep. wants, Trump gets. So, um, but I'd like, as soon as that starts to shift, right? Like I feel like they can move things in either direction kind of as they please, but I could mm-hmm. be wrong. Right. Um, I think what's interesting is, more so than whoever's making whatever big decision, right? The biggest determinant of what gets shown to you in your feed is what you've interacted with in the past. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an avid Ben Shapiro follower, you will see Ben Shapiro posts. Right. I click on every, you won't believe what they managed to do with this apartment with $200 article that I see. (laughs) So I get surfed those things left and right right, right. because – the goal of these platforms is not to serve you a certain type of content. It is to keep you on that platform. Like we were saying, right. for as long as possible, for as long as possible to get the ad revenue because Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, they are invested in whatever makes them money. And right now users consuming organic content, like a Ben Shapiro status update does not generate revenue. Right. But, ads that are served to you in the feed as you're scrolling through do generate revenue yeah and so they want their goal is not to serve a certain type of content their goal is to keep somebody on the platform Mm -hmm. and that's why the algorithm is designed to show you things that you have a proven history of interacting with in the past because they know oh they like this so they're gonna stay here longer (laughs) they're gonna stay here and they're gonna keep on watching (laughs) it's like your spotify discover or your release radar if they serve you artists that you don't really like you're not really going to use spotify that much anymore yeah but if they serve you things that they know that you'll enjoy you'll spend more time there and you'll do more for them as a company and so i think that's that's where i think like the 
the motivations seem clear cut when you're like, oh, well, they tamped down Ben Shapiro, but then mm-hmm. look at this other left wing person who's like taking off. But the end goal for any social media platform right now is users and ad revenue. Right. And they won't get those things by showing some skewed version of something to the followers that don't want that. So, right. Right. I, that's so, what I'm do you, uh, I have to ask you about this because. It's all all over the place right now. But what do you think about Trump getting banned from Twitter and Facebook and all that? Like, I know you said that, like, they can do whatever they want. I personally, I totally agree with that. But, like, for example, there are a lot of people that were saying that Donald Trump shouldn't have even had a little icon underneath his election fraud stuff, <laughs> right? So, like, there's there are a lot of sides. To, like, obviously, there's two sides to that. Yeah. So, like, should he have been banned for a lot of the things that he was saying? Like, was he technically lying, right, when he says that he believed that there was election fraud, right? I think it's a good thing that he was banned. I won't get into the, like, legality or mm-hmm. anything. Like, I can't really speak to that, and I'm sure that there's... Well, I mean, I'm it was sure totally legal for them to yeah, ban him, like, right? exactly. They're but, well within their right. Exactly. And there are a lot of other political leaders that have been banned from Twitter before. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of people who have positions of power who cannot post on Twitter, but they can still make speeches. They can still like govern their people. They can still do all the things that they would do. Trump chose Twitter as his de facto podium as the place where he made declarations and gave all of his followers updates about the state of the country and things like that. That was his choice. And he operated his personal Twitter account. He did not use the POTUS account. He did not use an official way to do that it would be one thing if twitter right. decided to ban the potus account right, right. versus real donald trump you right. know what i mean <laughs> right <laughs> i think what's so interesting to me is there are so many people who are dependent on these social media platforms for reach for their livelihoods mm-hmm. for outreach with their followers but they are at the behest of these social media platforms influencers like um Stephanie Yiannopoulos, mm-hmm. who depended so heavily on YouTube and Facebook, when they get deplatformed, their entire revenue stream right. goes away. Their ability gone. to interface with their followers goes away. And that's not the fault of the social media company. It's the fault of the Yiannopoulos of the world who did right. not invest in multiple media streams for their brand for and their for platform. their stuff. Right. Like, if you know that if your, like, if your weight in social media is based on your followers or the number of interactions that you get or like if you're an influencer and you get these media packages because of the reach that you achieve Mm -hmm. but if that social media platform goes dead and goes dark you're fried you're fried so i i think it's a bit it's a it's a risk that you take by choosing to build such a big brand and such a big following on a single platform right and centralizing all of that rather than distributing it to many means of outreach and communicating with people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was no doubt that like for Donald Trump, it was Twitter, right? Like that was his thing. And he was on there tweeting crazy stuff all the time, all the time. Right. And there were a lot of people, especially the people that followed Donald Trump very, very heavily that looked at that and they were like, Dude, I love the stuff that he says on there. Like the fact that Donald Trump is just a ridiculous troll. He tells a lot it like it is. Love. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's always long. he just says exactly how he feels, and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. Right? But there definitely is a problem with, you know, a a sitting president coming out and saying the entirety of our democracy is rigged. Right? And so, I guess the tough part is, 
if you're gonna sit if you're gonna sit down and say, all right, we have to draw on the line, uh, draw a line in the sand, right? If we're not gonna allow people to to lie or to say things that would be purposefully misleading, like do do they have to have a certain amount of followers? Like do they have to be saying a certain amount of like a certain thing? Like how false can it be? Because in a technical sense, Donald Trump was not wrong. He was not lying because there was election fraud. A very small, small like amount. Right. one percent of the electorate. Always yeah. a small amount of election fraud, right? So legally, you can't hold him culpable for saying that there was lying and no, saying he did that there claim were, that he had a landslide victory and that he won right. by more than like he Joe Biden that. was. Right, right, right. <laughs> he did say a lot of that, but on the specific election fraud allegations that he was putting forth, in a technical sense, he was not lying, right? That's that's a In real like technicality, tweets. right? Right. <laughs> Do but three tweets. <laughs> what has been what's been super interesting to me though is how uh, the Democrats. I don't know if you've been watching the impeachment proceedings. I've been so listening far. to some of it. Yeah, they've been. I mean, they've been pretty cool, pretty interesting to listen to. But um, the Democrats are basically just lining up their argument and just teeing off on Donald Trump using his Twitter. Like using the things that he was saying on his Twitter, talking to and communicating to his followers. If that's your megaphone, then that's doc- right. that's that's gospel. You right. know, like if Donald Trump is the prophet, then Twitter is his Ten Commandments, like right. his little like <laughs> right. trolls or whatever. Some QAnon stuff right, right there. Right. Donald Trump the prophet. <laughs> so like, I I completely like if the question is is it valid for Democrats to be putting so much weight on Donald Trump's tweets. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it's right. so valid. Oh, like, oh my God, because that is the main way that he communicated. He like he had no press briefings. There Not, was no way right. for official White House policy to really make it out to the people. Right. Well, I mean, there would be some times where he would tweet something that was the polar opposite of something that like, you know, the, as the White House spokesperson, you know, correspondent would be, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. She her it was Sean Spicer. It was a million of them, right? <laughs> I know, right? He so, has so many. But he um he would tweet, they would say something, and an hour later, Donald Trump would tweet something differently. So, like, that was, of course, the way that he communicated. Yeah, that's how so. he communicated directly with his followers. And I, I thought that the proceedings today were really interesting because they showed the parallels between the Michigan insurrection and the Capitol insurrection and how yeah. they kind of trace the similarities in rhetoric that Donald Trump employed in both instances and how in both instances the outcomes were the same. A mob descended on a Capitol building right. and attempted to deal with Congress people directly in a not so savory way. And right. Not so savory. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. I, oh yeah. man. And so I think that that was very effective. I thought that was a very good argument and a very like strong reasoning f- to present the impeachment and I think that it's entirely valid for people to view Donald Trump's Twitter as the communication of record. Right. Right. Do you think he gets impeached? It's doubtful. Like, do I want him to be impeached? Yes. Only so that future presidents don't view the lame duck period as they can just do whatever whatever they want. want. And then you can resign. Exactly. And get off scot-free. And I think it's so duplicitous of like, Mitch McConnell to say that it's too close to Donald Trump's uh, exit as president to impeach him. And then as soon as he's out of office, oh, well, it's too late. Sorry. Right. <laughs> right. We've got other things. We've got other things we need to get done. <laughs> like, <laughs> Good old Mitch it's McConnell. Just, it's so disingenuous. And it, yeah. it's really frustrating as someone on the left to 
see someone so adept at blackballing like reasonable policy and reasonable yeah. things like if donald trump is not guilty then it should not matter whether right. he is impeached now or later right if donald trump is not worthy of being impeached a second time then fine let it play out yeah. let the democrats yeah. embarrass themselves who cares yeah but the fact that it is at once too soon and too late right. to undertake these kinds of proceedings is bullshit right it's classic well and i like i did i remember when i did a podcast on it where i was basically i was like i'm telling y'all now that he's going to say that it's too close to donald trump getting out that he's going to turn around and he did it exactly and it's like that's so standard hypocrisy like that's just standard politics right Mm -hmm. now you know like that's just exactly what you would expect out of your politicians and if there's anybody that's good at blackballing policy that they don't like it's mitch mcconnell i read obama's memoir a promised land and the picture that Obama paints of Mitch McConnell is pitch perfect because yeah. it is a, as a Republican who can rally the troops mm-hmm. and get every other Republican to fall in line. And their sole goal is to not give an inch of ground to right. Democrats. Well, he's a phenomenal politician. So, I mean, Mitch McConnell's such a good politician. I don't agree with his po- a lot of his politics, but he's smart. He knows what he's doing. And Pelosi's the same way. I know. She's, I'm, I'm a little frustrated by the anti-Pelosi rhetoric that I've been seeing recently because like, as much as you might say that she's a neoliberal and that she is of like an old guard of Democrat pol- like of Democratic policies, fair, fine. Right. But I think a lot of people use that as a way to gloss over the fact that she is an astounding politician and she yeah. has done amazing things for like getting other Democrats to agree to certain procedures or certain bills and things like that. And I I was very intrigued by certain sections of Obama's memoir because I consume the news and the headlines mm-hmm. and the clickbait things that get, right. <laughs> that get like sent everybody to me. else like everybody i read a lot of them too right. but i have never read something so in depth about just the machinations of the behind the scenes of the capital and right. what goes on to get a bill passed and yeah. why certain things happen the way they do and i found it very fascinating yeah i mean and it's it's so deep it's so deep and i think that a lot of people are kind of like, it's going to be interesting and we can get into this, I guess, but like where the different parties are going right Mm. now, because I do think that with Donald Trump, there's no doubt that he consolidated control and power within the Republican party and he pulled it right. He pulled it, he pulled it, he pulled it rightward. I think, I think he was the pawn of the Republican party. If I'm being honest, I, I don't, I don't think that he's the mastermind. I think that he was, an inflammatory figure that mm-hmm. the Mitch McConnells of the Republican Party realized could help them achieve the things that they needed to do, like put two re- Republican justices on the Supreme Court mm-hmm. or well, three, three. I got three. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Anyway, I got Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and a- ACB s- there in the end. I'm sad. Yeah. But um, so I think I don't think Donald Trump is capable of 40 chess, as really? it's been called. So that's interesting because there's. Two widely varying opinions, right? Either Donald Trump is a mad genius or he's an he's a babbling idiot, right? I think it's and somewhere in the middle. Decide. I think he's a savant when it comes to social media and creating a spectacle. Like throughout his career. That he's has, a marketer. He's, he can market himself. That is what he's been good at. Right. Like his entire platform for election was I'm a great businessman and mm-hmm. it was founded on 
defrauding all of his contractors, Mm -hmm. going into millions of dollars in debt, being under tax investigation. Like, there is no world where Donald Trump is a great businessman. I don't know. So, So I will say, I somewhat disagree with that. Because I do think, especially in the New York real estate scene, a lot of the way that Donald Trump operated is the way that you kind of have to operate if you're going to make if you're going to make money. Oh, Austin, that hurts me because I, I, his I entire family refused to rent to black people. That's pretty awful. So, like, but, if that's the way that you have to operate to yeah. win in New York real estate, I don't want it. I yeah, don't care that's if that's what totally the fair. success is. So that's totally fair. I obviously I. But what I will say is, he amassed an incredible amount of wealth and then lost it on golf courses. Yeah, so. well, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I think he, being able to make a lot of money when you already have a lot of money is easy. Being able to keep a lot of money—it's a percentage game. It's a percentage <laughs> game, right? Like if it you just make snowballs, if you make it does it snowballs for sure. As soon like, as you get that first million dollar loan from your daddy, small, was, you're golden. <laughs> I was going to say all you need is a small million dollar loan. <laughs> Zero percent interest. You're good right. for life. <laughs> Got it. But I mean, so in to play the devil's advocate here, in Donald Trump's defense, there's not a lot of people that would be able to take a million dollars and turn it into a lot more than a million dollars. I mean, there are very real guesstimates of his net worth over a billion dollars, right? And you can say a lot of it is leveraged, of course. I totally understand that. But I, I have been saying for a long time, I think that Donald Trump is the mad genius behind his own marketing. Oh, because yes. 100%. I think that, don't get me wrong. I think the Republican... I don't think... I think the Republican Party tried to use them, and then they ended up shooting themselves in the foot because the Republican Party's in shambles right now. You can see that by how there's like Awful. a split now between the people who are trying oh, yeah. to renounce Trump after letting him run rampant for four mm-hmm. years and the people who are trying to hew even closer to Trump's base. Right. Trump's base is so volatile that right. if you try to cater to them now... You're just in for a lot of pain for the next, like, however many years. There's no way. There's no way. And Mitch McConnell realizes that. And he's been pushing away from it, which makes me wonder if Mitch McConnell's going to end up voting to impeach. Because I think he's going to try and bar Trump from running again. Didn't he already say that he thinks that it's in, like it's not possible for the impeachment to go through because it's too late? No, uh, no. Mitch McConnell is actually, he came out today and was like, I'm not sure what my position is going to be. Oh. I'm not sure whether I'm going to vote or not. I wonder if that's bait for Democrats, though. I'm scared. I don't know. See, I, th- I really do think that Mitch McConnell has a very good, ch- very, very good um argument for impeaching Trump because I think that Trump has been explicitly clear that he wants to start his own party if the Republican Party does decide to go against him which is <laughs> hilarious and will literally lead to the downfall of the Republican Party 100%. Yes, 100%. Um but I think Mitch McConnell has a very good argument for if we impeach Trump now and he can't run again, okay? Then what that means is Without Donald Trump, there is no republic. There is no a, a patriot party, right? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. You saw how a lot of the uh, candidates did in the Senate, whether it's you know Purdue and Loeffler in Georgia, they were totally backed by Trump. Fried. A lot of a, a lot of candidates, whether they were in the House or the Senate, did very poorly after they got huge backing by mm-hmm. Trump. Even when he did rallies in their hometowns, right? And, right. Yeah. and they they did very very poorly. So it's almost like. Trump has his base that will come out and vote for him. If Trump's not leading that Patriot Party, I don't see it getting very far. So if McConnell plays some real 4D chess here, right? (laughs) And he's like, he gathers everybody around. And in that sweet, smooth, southern, buttery draw McConnell has so good. He just lays down the law and is like, we got to get him out of here. 
I think he's got a decent argument for it. Yeah. But it's going to be your Josh Hollies or, you know, your, your Ted Cruz. Where did he come from? Like, Dude. I didn't hear Josh Hawley's name until the week of the right. insurrection. And, and then the- everybody's like, wait, who's this dude? Like, get what? out of here. <laughs> what are you doing? Have you seen the picture of Mitt Romney just like dead staring Josh Hawley? No, oh no. my God, it's incredible. So, that's the, so I want to ask you, because I, I know you're a, a good bit more left leaning probably than I am. Yes. So <laughs> I'm probably your most liberal friend. But more than likely, more than likely, which I love personally. I think that's great. So where do you think the Democratic Party is going? Because there's some serious fractures there, too. That's true. And I think it's really interesting, right? Because the Biden presidency, I think, will be a litmus test for liberals because mm-hmm. you have the people now who are still upset that Bernie didn't win in either election, in either primary. Um, well, not in the 2016 and in the 2020. And then they're still hopeful that Bernie-type policies will get passed. Right. And with a Biden presidency, he's already passed some of the most liberal agendas that we've seen in history. Well, executive orders. Executive right. orders. Yeah. And budget, <laughs> whatever. Right. But I think... It will be interesting to see what is enough for liberals. And something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is what will it take for people in the Democratic Party to be happy with what's happening? Because Mm -hmm. everyone has an idea of what would be ideal and what would be best. Like we hear defund the police, prison abolition, Mm -hmm. $15 minimum wage. We hear all like climate change everything right and nothing all at once you know so it's like and everybody wants those things yesterday and so right. anything that is not 100 percent of what certain parts of the liberal base want is a failure and that's really hard because with i think something that republicans have done really well is they've coalesced around some certain core tenets and like if you meet a republican it's highly likely that they are um anti-abortion right pro-gun rights <laughs> yep. they are anti-tax and mm-hmm. they want to protect their property and their family yep. like that are that's like the core tenets of a like a republican person and right. if you meet somebody who says that they're a republican you're guaranteed yeah. to have at least have three four. of those yeah, yeah at least at the minimum three <laughs> yeah right? exactly but with liberals you have a rainbow of yeah. things that are everyone's top priority and if they don't see any of those priorities being acted upon in a quick enough manner it's upsetting and, yeah, yeah yeah and i can under i can relate to that upset because like it's it's not that change isn't happening fast enough it's that we've been in such a bad situation for so long mm. and so there's a lot of disheartedness around watching people that you know shouldn't be suffering continue to suffer yeah. and you know what the answer is you know that a 15 dollars minimum wage would ease a lot of suffering you know that more regulation on climate change would ease a lot of suffering. You know that, so on and so forth. And so every time that liberals and the Democratic base don't coalesce around like passing this one thing Mm -hmm. or doing this one thing that you know would be right, it feels disappointing. And I think that's a big big asset for Democrats because like I think empathy is a big component of that, but it's also a detractor because – if no politician can get something passed yesterday, no politician right. can get something passed that fast. Like it took Obama two years to pass the ACA. And even then Democrats were still upset that it wasn't enough, that it didn't right. do more for people who needed health insurance. And it's just so difficult to rally people when what you're proposing isn't as 
satisfying as they want it to be. And it's hard to galvanize people when something is not satisfying. And I think the Democratic Party, as much as all of those values are important, climate change and minimum wage and economic security and things like that, that's important. But I think it would behoove us to find something, some things that are more unifying and more achievable for things to kind of come together. And not to say that like, Obviously, Republicans haven't been able to do very much for um, being right. anti-abortion and being like pro-gun rights and things like that. But like, it would be nice to see more core tenants carry Democrats through and yeah. to see more things achievable that we can all celebrate. And I'm kind of frustrated that it took a month for Joe Biden to pass the coronavirus relief bill when so many of the other democrats elected in this election cycle ran on you're going to get two thousand dollars right you're going to get coronavirus relief and then as soon as he came into office they watered that down it took a month because he wanted to make a play around like appealing to republicans and like entertaining Mm -hmm. what they were going to say and it's like we know what we need to do Mm. you ran on this please just do it don't hem and haw about like bipartisanship when a bipartisan bill would be something that helps everyone. Something yeah. that helps no like it doesn't matter what your party is. Right. Two thousand dollars would help everybody. Yeah. So it was very it's it's been very frustrating. Like and so I know that there's some parts of myself that get disappointed when things don't happen as fast. And I know that that's like a pitfall of <laughs> the Democrats at large, but it's just I think that that's our major problem right now. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I think that you're a hundred percent spot on when you say Republicans have their things that they well a lot most Republicans I know are single issue. They're mm-hmm. single issue voter, and it's abortion, right? Like abortion is the number one reason why they're going to be voting for a Republican. Which is so funny because abortion is uh legal in all fifty states. So. <laughs> well, I mean it's it's interesting because like I think that the the thing the thing that confuses me is I think by polling data. The vast majority of people, especially on the left side of the aisle, are not as progressive as Bernie Sanders or an AOC, right? Not yet. Not yet, right. And it seems like they're moving that, like a lot Mm -hmm. of people are moving that way. But there's this gigantic center, right? There's like this really big center of, there are a lot of people that vote on the right side of the aisle because they want fiscal conservatism right where like this push towards i I really i really want to pay attention to what the deficit looks like right and there are a lot of people that vote on the left side of the aisle because they care a lot for making sure that civil rights are protected the way that they should be that privacy should be respected the way that it should be and i you know i i think that there is this gigantic room for not everybody wants a I don't know, like a single payer Medicaid for all, right? There's a portion of the Democratic Party that wants that, of course. Just in the same vein as not every single person, a small percentage of people want abortion to be completely illegal, right? There's a, that's a small portion of the even the Republican Party, mm-hmm. right? And so there has to be this this move towards, and I think that honestly, I really do think that Joe Biden has played, especially the coronavirus bill, politically very well. Because I think that what he's done is, especially coming into the, to office, the first things that he did was play to the progressives. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing that he did. And I think it's because he knew that he needed to get them on his side. Because if there's a lot of people that you know aren't huge fans of Joe Biden, of course it's going to be the right wing, but it's your far left that isn't a huge fan of Joe Biden either. Well, that's the problem. Is like I think from your vantage point, as someone who doesn't really engage with a lot of progressive rhetoric, 
like well i try to i read a lot of progressive <laughs> yeah. rhetoric right but but i mean i do live in columbia south carolina yeah so all of, of all of the progressives that i know are most upset about the two thousand dollar checks hmm. and that they've been cut to fourteen hundred and there's been some like magic around right. well it was well, two thousand total you already right? got six hundred so here's fourteen hundred right, and right, together right. it makes two thousand that's right. math so yeah. like that's yeah. really frustrating right so i think that what he did the first day in office was undo a lot of things that upset progressives i don't right. know if he asked if he actually enacted a lot of things mm. that would please progressives do you that's see what totally I mean? fair so totally fair. Right. i think that there's a lot of room for Joe Biden to fill the shoes of what progressives want him to be. For moderate Democrats, I think that he's heaven sent. Right, like, right. Moderate Democrats think that he's Mwah. Right. Like, well, I would say most of them, a lot of the Democrats I know are more moderate. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the more moderate Democrats I talk to are like, Joe Biden has done exactly what I feel like I wanted him to do so far. Right. And granted, it's only been a month. Right. right. So he's got plenty of room to screw And he's up. done a lot in a month. To he be has. Fair. Oh he's been God. moving and shaking. Yeah. Which is surprising because he doesn't move very fast and from what it looks like. <laughs> considering what his predecessor did, which was a Twitter and news for six hours well, a day. So, like- okay. So I will say if. If you are a far right wing Republican, Trump was one of the best presidents that you've had in a long time, right? Since Reagan. I mean, if you were a staunch right wing conservative, Trump really was your dude. Mm-hmm. Um, he really did uphold, especially with what he did with the Supreme Except Court. Except taking the economy. The economy. Mm. Wow, come on. Well, I guess you could argue you didn't really, didn't really do a whole lot on the coronavirus, which definitely tanked the economy. <laughs> So I can and, give you that and one. And contributed the most market volatility that we've experienced in decades. That's also fair. But there's going to be market volatility. It's just going to happen. Nothing you can do to stop Don't it. Don't touch my 401k, Trump, please. <laughs> I mean, he was great for my 401k. And I think it that's why... It okay, too. But for a little while there, I was like... Oh, yeah. Well, it goes up and down. That's just how it goes. We're back to all-time highs. Mm-hmm. We're in that V-shape recovery right now. That's what it's you got to understand. people are betting on Joe Biden. That's oh. what the market's saying to me. So... I I so eat the economy side of things is my bread and butter like that's what oh, I I'm love. scared I've waited that's, into a territory that I don't know very that's, well that's my, the economy is my thing that was my so you were urban planning I was finance oh no was, we are different people I was I was all in the numbers but I really one of the things that I am most worried about with the Joe Biden presidency is the economy overheating I, I am we're, actually we're overdue for an overheating honestly so I so I thought that it was going to overheat under Trump. I thought it was going to overheat in 2018, to be so, completely honest. Right. With you. I did too. I did too. But I think that the economy is actually going to grow too fast in, two, in 2021 that will actually cause it to overheat and make cause us to go into a recession. Are you talking about stock markets or are you talking about like GDP? I'm talking about all, all, all the way across the board. So if you look at equity markets... I think the equity markets are due for a good correction, but uh, especially real estate markets as well. There's a bubble um, there, for Especially sure. within commercial real estate right now. I think that there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of questions. And then when you see that when the government hands out, you know, almost $2 trillion worth of stimulus or $1.5 trillion worth of stimulus, that's a lot of money to be pushed into the economy. And when you get, when you start flooding the economy with cash like that, with interest rates as low as they are, it worries me. Like I'm worried mm. that there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of real real highs and then just right back down. Um, but and then you know at that point in time it's like well, we got to pass another stimulus bill. Hmm. You know the economy's crashing again. We got to we got to stimulate the economy. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean they're they're all trying to turn the dials as much as they can to make yeah. sure the economy stays on track. And I think like your fears about the economy are I don't know what the word is, but like they 
are an inverse of my fears. Like your fears are about things getting too good and then things bottoming out. My fear is that we haven't fully reckoned with the amount of unemployed people in the United States right now. We are not producing what we should be in terms of output and productivity Mm -hmm. because there's so much unemployment. And I don't think that the markets have aligned with that reality. And I'm scared that if there's any correction, it will be to equalize between the unemployment rate and all of this crazy speculation that's driven the stock market up. So my fear is that when we have an economic correction, which we're overdue for, Mm -hmm. it's been way longer than it's been between recessions historically. Right. Oh, yeah. Like We're well overdue. It makes sense that we're in one right now. But I feel like the... There hasn't been as much reckoning with the amount of people who are struggling right now. Yeah. And I think like you and I are in a very privileged position. We're both yeah. still working. We both have salaries. We're both like, right. we have our own Ks. We're both sitting like kind of pretty. We both just refinanced our houses. Like right. we're fine. But there are so many other people in the U.S. right now who are not fine, who do depend on stimulus to get through the next few months, if not more. Right. And I think that it's honestly an indictment of our economic system that numbers can look so rosy right now and so many people can still be in so much trouble. And that's what scares me is that with numbers looking as rosy as they are, we are not focusing on the real problem at hand because we're in a false sense of security. Yeah, so that honestly is my problem with Joe Biden's stimulus is that I think that he's giving, that the, the Democrats in a lot of ways are structuring a bill to give money to more people that don't need it because there are a lot of people that like, there's no reason why I should be getting a stimulus check. Oh, I give all of my stimuluses to feeding America. So, so I, it's you're like, unemployed. <laughs> so, I mean, but so it's interesting, interesting that you say that because, um, so the first guest that I had on was my buddy Landon. And one of the things that he talked about was how the thing that got him through the pandemic was the people around him, like the charity of the people around him. And, and he um, got the PPE. Right. And he was, he was like, I'm talking to him. He was like, the PPP loans absolutely helped. He was like, but at the end of the day, like that ran out, you know? And for me, what I think is frustrating is the unemployment rate is definitely not great. God, right. No, it's but, <laughs> But it is honestly not far off from where we would be outside of a recessionary period. The unemployment rate right now is sitting, I think, somewhere, and you can check this actually, Matthew, to see what the exact unemployment rate is. But I think it's sitting somewhere between about 8 to 10%. And 8 to 10% historically is not great, right? But it is not nearly as high. What did you say? I said 8 to 10. It says 6.3%. 6.3, okay. Okay, so it's got six point three percent. So it's gone it was down like a little bit since last time. Four, I think, was under, yeah. Like, Pre-COVID, it was at like three seven. Yeah, uh, th- I think three five was the lowest. But and I have my own qualms with how they even actually calculate the right because it's, it's, it's the people who haven't looked for work right. in like the last year. And right. It's like, well, it's a, they're just chronically unemployed. So right. That should be worse. Than- <laughs> but um, for me, so the unemployment rate actually is not it's it's not terrible, right? But we do have the people that are suffering are suffering bad, right? Hard, yeah. So it's Evictions like my thing and, is yeah. it's like the amount the thing that concerns me is. The amount of people that are probably suffering from anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, the lack of proper health care, the, uh, the inability to be able to pay rent, and all of that is all focused on lower wage and lower income people. Mm-hmm. So my thought is, 
why are we get why are the in why are the income brackets at like a hundred and fifty grand a year? Oh, like why? I, th- I thought it was seventy five. A seventy five single, hundred and fifty married. Mm-hmm. But it's so, based on last year's numbers. It's twenty nineteen. So that's, that's what's messed up to me about it because if you lost your job in twenty twenty, right. you're still getting judged on what you pulled in twenty nineteen. Right. And so there is no accurate measure right now of who is actually missing out on income. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I don't think an income bracket makes sense because I would rather the most people get it because there's no way for us to actually know who needs it more than anybody else mm, because our numbers fair. are yeah. so inaccurate based on what 2020 did to people. But see, to me, it should be easy. If you're applying for unemployment, then let's put you in the pool. Right. I wish the unemployment systems were, <laughs> were, right. were more navigable. Not very Some efficient. people have not applied right. for unemployment because the process is such a headache. It's awful. Yeah. It's awful. Not that I've had to apply for it, but I'm friends with a lot of people who've had to, and right. their stories about having to go through it, not good. Not well, that's good. the argument against large government, right? Well, <laughs> it's not large government. It's a state-run system. Well, so. right, right, right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And in April it was fourteen point seven. Right. Well, so we went up five times. And then, but it was at it went down to three point seven in November of last year. So yeah. It stayed consistent since then. Yeah, and that's what I think is uh, I, there is. I think this portion of me that feels like there's a certain bit of fear mongering around the state of the economy because. I think that if you're able to convince people that everything's going to hell in a handbasket, it's going, and then you're the one that's able to give them money, then it helps you out at the polls. That I'm, I'm always so weary of politicians mm. being like, "I'm going to be the one that helps you. Don't worry about it. I've got your back." And maybe that's just me being cynical. It probably is, but I like personally for the for the stimulus checks and stuff like that. I'm all for the increased unemployment. I think that's fantastic, right? The rent moratoriums. I can see and understand why you would need them there, but also I think that there's a way to be able to structure rent moratoriums in a place where there are people that may still have jobs that are not paying on their rent right now that probably need to, um, even though obviously they're going to have to reckon with all of it towards the end. But um, I don't know. I, I have this concern about you're going to give out this gigantic stimulus, but like there's going to be a lot of people that get that stimulus that are, I mean, it was something like, I, I, read, I was reading an article the other day, it was saying around 70 to 75% of the people that got the stimulus uh, that didn't need it, didn't spend it in the economy. They just paid down debt and put it in savings. But it's not a good thing to pay down debt. It's not. It doesn't right. help the economy. Well, it doesn't help the economy numbers, but it helps mm-hmm. the people. It helps the people who don't want to have that right hanging around their neck. And so I think, I think it's funny that you say that you're cynical about politicians who say that they're going to help you. I think it's an incredibly cynical thing to think that people who get money don't use it to the best of their ability. And not to say that they're not using it to the best of their ability right. to help other people, but just to the best of their ability for themselves. And right. that's what we want people to be doing. We want, I trust my fellow man to get a $1,400 stimulus check and decide for themselves what they're going to do. With right, it, right. And that it's going to be the best thing for them in that moment. Like right now, if I got a $1,400 stimulus check, I would pay for the foundation in my floor because our floors are separating from our walls right now and it's going to cost us $7,700 to fix it. Yeah. So, so like, put it towards that, right? I would like that money and you could be to like, pay that. Thank you, Biden. Yes. Like, and that is going to a locally owned business. Right. Like the person around the corner from us owns it. Like, right, thank right. you, Rosewood Neighbors. Like, this is great. Right. But I don't, 
I don't think putting caveats on money is how we empower people to make the best decisions for their lives. Right. And I think that, ironically, it imposes more restrictions on them to do what's best for them, which is something that's inherently anti-Republican. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't want to regulate the way that somebody chooses to live their life. And I think that there's a lot of fear-mongering around people who misuse the types of services that the government oh, absolutely. hands out. And I of think course. that that leads to over-regulation of yeah. services that the government hands out. And that leads to dehumanizing the people who receive those right, services. Right, it's just a number. Right. And so yeah. I would rather have a no-strings-attached check to whoever needs it. I mm-hmm. wish that it was based on unemployment or the people who are suffering the most in 2020. Unfortunately, the data isn't there to right. allow that. So it's based on 2019. But I don't care. Yeah. Who gets it and how they spend it so long as it helps them. And I trust them to be able to make that decision for themselves. Yeah. Uh, people have people have the ability to decide for themselves. Right. right. Like everyone's a free agent. Right. And we should, like, of course, there are going to be people who might use it for things that we wouldn't personally do that for. But as long so as we're great. taken care of, that's fine. I yeah. don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's fair. And that's the argument behind it, right? Like, get, get, get people to check so they can spend it how they want to. And then you have the Rand Pauls of the world that are like, the government doesn't even have this money. They shouldn't be spending it. Well, you know? guess who ran up the deficit <laughs> yeah. with their tax plan? Listen, I totally agree. I if I if I had any major qualm with Trump, it, Trump, it was actually economic. It was fiscally. I saw a very interesting was, uh, graph the other day that showed the amount of deficit for each president over the last like seven presidents. Trumps. Yep. And uh, guess who had the uh, lowest deficit out of the last like eight presidents? Democrats. That's that's not surprising to me. It's not. But in a lot of those Democrats, they had Republican Congresses as well. So, and they still managed to do good things for the economy. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> With all the uh, fair enough, <laughs> fair enough. All right. Well, I think that is probably a good place to stop it. We've covered a lot of ground. Here. We have covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Seriously, it, it has been a, a ton of fun. I feel like we got some a whole bunch of we covered a wide range. And now you know so much more about my politics than you did before. I, do. I had the benefit of listening to your podcast. You had no idea what I was bringing. Today. Well, you got to start your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun. I won't do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, you're welcome anytime. I mean, you come to our house <laughs> relatively frequently. So. Before the pandemic, it was more frequent. But. Right, right, right. But we're definitely glad to have you. And um, I really do hope that a lot of our listeners enjoy this conversation as well. So. I hope so too. Yeah. I hope so too. Absolutely. Cool. So as always, y'all, thank you so much for stopping in, for checking us out. You know that we're going to do our best to try and look at the left and the right side of the aisle as much as we possibly can um, and try to find a little bit of that middle ground, having good conversations where uh, you can have differing opinions and still have you know cordial and good discourse we're gonna walk away friends from this right is is a good thing and i you know that's the whole goal of this podcast is to hopefully try and push more of that so i appreciate your willingness to uh come on and come on and do that with me thank you for the invitation absolutely so everybody remember stay level-headed always be reasonable and of course split the difference 